Hear ye, hear ye, word nerds. Be forewarned that this podcast contains saucy language of the modern and early modern varieties. So plan your listening accordingly. Or don't. That's a choice that you can make. But don't say we didn't warn you. What kind of cake is it? It's, um, rugelach. But instead of one... I'm sorry, did you say arugula? I did not say arugula. I said rugelach. Oh. <laughs> Got it. Um, it's Thank like, you. it's a Jewish croissants. Oh. Sort of. Okay. Um, they're filled with chocolate. Me. yeah and it looks real fucking good anyway uh whenever you're ready <laughs> i'm ready yeah <laughs> i'm very ready now i want some of that arugula cake it's so. not arugula <laughs> <laughs> that's a vegetable <laughs> well that's why i was surprised initially <laughs> i was like what kind of vegan nonsense is this it's jessica it's jewish but, it's jewish yeah. af the hurly burly shakespeare show we are your hosts dr jess hamlet and aubrey whitlock and together we are dr whamlet um so what we do here is we discuss a different play each week sometimes it's shakespeare sometimes it's not this time it is not um and also it's a 101 level episode this week Mm -hmm. yeah that means you get introductory things you get everything you need to know to have a general understanding of the play and some of its themes and other cool stuff that you're going to get nowhere else. Um, and I do feel like sometimes we overpromise when we say everything you need to know. But we will tell you pertinent stuff. So, so yeah, you're going to get an overview. Yeah. <laughs> but first... I'm so loopy today. I'm sorry. It's Sunday. We're fine. Yeah. Um, before we get into the play, yeah, what we're going to do is what we do every week. And we're going to yeah. tell you some shit that we're into. So what are you yeah. into this week, Ups? Yeah. For the happy hour this week, uh, I like flirt poles. And that sounds way sexier than it is. A flirt pole is my new favorite dog toy. Okay. A flirt pole. <laughs> All right. Yeah. So a flirt pole. Okay. So basically if you have cats and if you have any one of those like fishing rod dingly dangly things, like there's like a, a rod and then there's something on a line hanging from it. That is what a flirt pole is. Only it's like big, like PVC pipe and like bungee cord, you know, uh, strength and length of thing and then like a squeaky toy type of situation hanging at the end so it is a giant it's a cat toy for dogs awesome um and yeah for a pup like mine who's got a pretty strong prey drive and who's got um some impulse control issues it's a wonderful toy (laughs) but also a training toy Uh, yes yeah you know she's a puppy she's got impulse control issues because she's a baby um but a flirt pole is a really great way one um, like if you are stuck inside, uh, like on, if, you know, we got pelted with a ton of rain not too long ago. And I was like, fuck, what am I going to do with my dog? Ah, she's a puppy and she runs a million miles an hour. And how am I going to get her outside? If it's like torrential rain, you know, how are we going to exercise? Um, flirt poles are really great for like wearing a dog out real fast. Um, if they, if they like to chase things and boo does, um, and also, it's a really great training tool, you know, to get them to learn how to, like, step away, how to drop it, right? The leave it kind of commands. Right, right, right. Um, so I'm just loving that right now. I also just love the novelty of having a an overgrown cat toy for my dog. <laughs> uh, how, so. how do the cats feel about the toy? 
You know what? I've only used it outside. Okay. With glue. Okay. Yeah. Um, the 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 cat sized flirt poles are actually way high up on a bookshelf because my cats can't be trusted with them, and neither can the dog. Um, <laughs> and i <laughs> I haven't uh, I haven't tried to use the the flirt pole in my living room yet. I got I would have to like clear the floor. Yeah, that seems like um, a disaster. <laughs> to see if the cats would try to play along, they probably would. I know yeah. Rafe definitely would. Yeah. So, but that's what I like. Flirt poles. You can find them on Amazon. You can find them on Etsy. You can find them kind of anywhere. So love that. Yeah. All like right. A flirt pole for your very active dog. Very good. Um, what you got? Well, I'm recommending a little bit of self care this week. Um, so longtime listeners, or even not quite so longtime listeners, will know that uh, <laughs> about a year and a half ago, uh, I moved to Pennsylvania from a new job. Right, graduated with my PhD, and I got that mm. sweet, sweet tenure track job. Um, and yeah, you know, you things are things are good, things are fine, but I don't have friends here, um, and so I spend a lot of time doing nothing by myself in my living room um and yesterday I was like you know what I want to take myself out for a fancy dinner Hmm. by myself because I want to and I can and so I went by fancy like how fancy like fifty dollars a plate fancy yeah 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 i took myself to uh redding's only (laughs) fancy restaurant uh question mark only um uh and i had a frankly fine piece of chicken but uh an incredible parmesan risotto um mm. and uh a really fancy champagne cocktail and um a like perfect sphere of chocolate mousse for dessert and it was just it was it was and i like put on stupid shoes and a dumb dress and i like put on <laughs> jewelry and i was just like i'm gonna go treat myself uh and i did and it was fun and i took a book and i read and i was just like in a corner of a restaurant on a saturday night with a book and a glass of champagne basically and like it was amazing um so i'm gonna recommend that take yourself out take yourself out for and it doesn't obviously like need to be like a fancy dinner um because that is not in everyone's budget. And frankly, it is rarely in my budget, but it, it just happened to be payday yesterday. Um, mm. So I, I could. <laughs> uh, but like, treat yourself to something nice, especially if it's something that like, yeah, you, w- you wouldn't normally do by yourself or for yourself. Like, do that. And then I, I, on my way home, went grocery shopping for Thanksgiving in my, <laughs> like, stupid shoes and fancy backless dress, just, like, wandering <laughs> up and down the aisles of the giant, being like, I, I need this giant stock of Brussels sprouts. Yes, I do. <laughs> I love so, it. I yeah. love it. Yeah, it was a good time. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Treat yourself. Yeah. I love that. I love that. All right. Well, that's our happy hour. Uh, now it's time to, oh, did we even say what play we're talking about? Uh, nope, <laughs> we didn't. <laughs> I don't know how no, that's not we didn't. in the intro. Like, we, isn't it like, usually, and this week we're talking about? Yeah, it's just, wow. How did that happen? It just wasn't, that we were like, yeah, it's a one-on-one level, but for what? You don't know. <laughs> Well, I mean, they know because they could like it. They have the episode title in front of them, right? Like, sure, 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 sure. Wherever they found it, sure. Like, we didn't, we we didn't put this out as like it's a surprise one hundred and one. Like, we, (laughs) 
Yeah. You well, know. We're totally burying the lead right yeah. now. So, <laughs> because I was just about to jump into our Meet the Contemporary yeah. segment, but we haven't even said what fucking play we're doing. It's the City Nightcap by Robert Davenport. Yeah. Which is a bad play that you've never heard of unless you're no. one of approximately 20 it's... people who lived in Stanton, Virginia in 20. 20- 14 and 2015 uh but if you're not one of those people you've never heard of this play and it's bad so it's fine it's yeah it's a bad play Uh, (laughs) it's amusing but it's a bad play yeah uh yeah so let's meet the contemporary robert (sighs) davenport aka bobby davs this is your life yeah um we don't know jack about this guy is the thing so like we don't we don't know when he was born we don't know when he died uh yeah we don't we don't know anything about him we don't know when he was born where he was born we don't know if he had parents we don't know if he had a wife or a husband or children or siblings we know nothing um (laughs) we do know this is this is like the the one indisputable fact about him that we know is that he was writing plays and poetry between 1623 and 1639 so probably he was born before 1623 yeah, I would think. Yeah, but um, but was he a child prodigy? I mean, <laughs> was he born in like sixteen sixteen? <laughs> probably not. Probably not. I I read something somewhere that was like some scholars believe that he was born in the late fifteen eighties, but okay. we're not going to tell you who those scholars are or why they think that. Joke's on you. Great. <laughs> Wow, love that scholarship. I know, right? I was like, cool. That's really useful. Um, yeah, there's no record of him attending Oxford or Cambridge or any of the inns of court. Like, uh, okay. there, you know, we have those records for like Thomas Middleton and Christopher Marlowe right. and like all of the other, all of the other failed law students, yeah, that like, turned playwright in this yeah. period. Yeah. Um, so like he must have gotten some kind of education because he wrote things. But um, the first time that he enters the historical record is in 1624 when two of his plays were licensed by the Master of the Revels. So that's like our first like boom. Bobby Davs, he was in England at this time. And here's how we know it. Doing plays, publishing the plays. Yeah. Um, Do you want to tell us what plays he was was doing? So he wrote three plays that we know of. The City Nightcap, which is this episode. A New Trick to Cheat the Devil. And King John and Matilda. Yeah. That is is what we got. (laughs) Yeah. So I'm going to birdwalk a little bit here. Um, And also, like, spoiler. Uh... I wrote my MFA thesis on this play. Yep. Um, So it's been a time. It's been a lot of time since that happened. Six and a half years. Okay. (laughs) Time. What is time? What is? Fake. It's fake. Um, So, yeah. So it's been a minute since I was doing all of this research, but. When I was doing all of this research, I do recall that no one was talking about the city nightcap and everyone was talking about King John and Matilda. So if you're interested in King John, he of Robin Hood and Shakespeare fame, here's another play about him that scholars are at least interested in. I don't know if they like it, but they're interested in it. Uh, Matilda, I think, is his mistress. Um, and also this play, yeah. the, the King John and Matilda, right. uh, play is apparently more or less a rewrite of like a Decker Monday joint. So sure. Okay. There's that. That tracks. That's, that's very, a very early modern practice. Yeah. So. Yeah. yeah. Um, what else do we know about Nightcap, babe? Uh, we know that the city Nightcap was licensed in 1624, but not printed until 1661 which is a massive gap between getting your play like basically approved right but but not getting it in print um the subplot of this play was borrowed from cervantes and boccaccio 
And Offer Ben adapted it for her 1761 play, nope. 1671 play, yep. <laughs> her 1671 play, The Amorous Prince. Um, what else do we know? Uh, we know that three other plays entered the Stationer's Register as Davenport's that have not survived. So these would be like, you would find these listed on the Lost Plays database, right? Yeah. Like we have the titles and we know they existed at one point, but we don't have the scripts anymore. Those are The Peddler, The Fatal Brothers, and The Politic Queen. Uh, Samuel Shepard in a 1651 epigram mentions a fourth lost work called The Pirate. Which is which a like, great name for a play. <laughs> so simple, so effective. Uh, so engaging. Like, I want to know about the pirate. Yeah, I'm gonna, sorry, I'm just pulling up. Yes, okay, so the Lost Place database does have an entry for the pirate, but they, it does not say anything other than what we just said about it, which is mm -hmm. upsetting. It's called the pirate. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> and it was mentioned by Samuel Shepard. That's it. And it maybe probably was written by Bobby Dabbs. Yeah, yeah. All right. Cool. Damn. <laughs> uh, so there was a history play titled Henry the uh, First that was licensed for performance by the King's Men on the 10th of April in 1624, also called like attributed to Davenport. Um, it also has not survived. So in 1653, when the stationer Humphrey Moseley registered Cardenio as the work of Shakespeare and John Fletcher, he simultaneously registered a Henry the First and Henry the Second and another play called Henry the Second as the works of Shakespeare and Davenport, quote unquote. And while the Henry I, licensed in 1624, was certainly a play for the King's Men, it first appears eight years after Shakespeare's death, and scholars have been universally skeptical that Davenport and Shakespeare ever worked together at all, period, end of sentence. Yeah, you, you will, um, if you read this play, you will notice Hampst ever. <laughs> that Davenport one hundo p read Shakespeare, sure. um, because half of this play is measure for measure, and half of it is Pericles, and then a third half is like the Decameron. So um, mm -hmm. th there yeah, it is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So that is what we know about Robert Davenport, and it's mostly more about the plays he wrote and then lost. And less about yeah. him as a person. Because we don't know Jack about him. We don't, no, we don't really at all. Like, there's no records of this dude doing mm -mm. anything. Mm -mm. What a boring person. <laughs> well, Maybe he was a spy. I don't know. Maybe he was an alien. Maybe he, like, burned off his fingerprints. And Well, actually, nobody knew about fingerprints back then. But, like, you know what I mean? Like, he was off the grid, man. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you just conspiracy theoried so hard. I did. <laughs> He was so off the grid. <laughs> uh, Good sorry, talk. I told you. I warned you. I'm loopy today. That's I'm, fine. It's been a it's been a week. Okay. Uh, all right. So as with any 101 level episode, we like to give you a five word unhelpful <laughs> title. Mine is "He Kicks Her, She Weeps," which is a paraphrasing of stage directions, but also. <laughs> He kicks her, she weeps. There you yeah. go. There's my unhelpful title. I think it's also the title of my thesis. <laughs> is it? <laughs> no, no, no. The title of my thesis is Kicks Her and Exit. Um, ah. Mine is a bed trick, but not. Yep. Because there's a bed trick, but it's not a bed trick. Yeah. There are bed shenanigans for yeah. sure. Yeah. Yeah. But not a traditional bed trick in the way that we understand them. Yeah. That's... And have explained them on previous episodes. Yeah. It, it's not a bed trick. Yeah. It's a trick yeah. with a bed. <laughs> yeah. But it's not a and bed in trick. a bedroom. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Um, okay. So, now it's time for the DP. Yeah. Oh. We're going to we're going to hit you with some characters, not all of them, because, you know, why? Yeah. Uh, and we're going to start with Lorenzo, who is a douchebag. Yeah, that's literally what it says in the title. No. Um. <laughs> <laughs> like on the printed page with the <laughs> yeah um I don't... yeah so lorenzo has a wife her name is abstemia or abstemia we went back and forth so many times i think on how to pronounce it when we were producing this play i don't remember so i just remember going back and forth about it. i don't remember what conclusion we arrived at so mm -hmm. i'm just gonna stick with abstemia 
Yeah, I sh- this is like it should be a thing that I remember because I was the fucking sure. dramaturg, but no, and no. I was the stage manager. I should have. Yeah, I should. Anyway. Um. Anyway, he also has a best friend, uh, and his name is Filippo. Right. Uh. There's also Lodovico, who's a dude in the same city. Uh huh. Uh. Verona is where they are. Sorry. Great. Uh. <laughs> so Lodovico has a wife. Her name is Dorotea. Lodovico has a friend named Francisco. Yeah, he does. Uh, then we have Pambo, the clown. Oh, Pambo. Um, then there's this guy named Antonio, the son <laughs> of the Duke of Milan. Yeah, he comes in in Act 5. <laughs> it's like a whole thing. Yep. Uh, and then, you know, there's like bods and panders and lords and dukes and shit and, you know. Lots of um, lots of little sub characters. Yeah, the the characters that would fill out a play that is like part city comedy and part tragedy and part Pericles mm-hmm. and part measure for measure. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. So. Yeah. Um. Cool. Why should this play be so goddamn popular? Well, it shouldn't, <laughs> and it, it, it shouldn't. It isn't. So good work, folks. We've all done what we need <laughs> to do. Um, I mean, the play's like interesting from a bit of a like from like a theoretical scholarly standpoint because of you know because of some of its stage directions are really interesting um because of it's like it says the title page says you know this is a tragic comedy but it's like half city comedy and like half not and like that's interesting um and then there is all of the ways that it's measure for measure and all of the ways that it's pericles and like that's kind of interesting so like there's some interesting stuff um and obviously as with i think every single early modern play it's better in performance than it is on the page um but it's still not great so yeah i mean yeah it's 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 just a it's just weird and not that well written you know and uh you can get clearly better like the same story better told Mm -hmm. in measure for measure and And pericles Pericles. (laughs) and other city comedies by your boy thomas middleton right or or ben johnson even yeah um so you know, it's yeah. it's trash. It is really fun trash. Yeah. I do remember I personally had a great time stage managing this show. It is a hoot because yeah. it's so weird, but it's probably more amusing for the people producing it than it is necessarily for the people watching it. Yeah, I yeah. um I got some friends together on Zoom on Friday to read it. Um, and when, we, when we got to the end, they were like, well, that happened to us <laughs> i was like i told you i told you this was a bad play <laughs> they yeah. were like yeah um yeah. it was fun we had a we had a fun time because uh it, we have fun um i love to read old plays even when they're bad so um anyway summary time yes we will now summarize the city nightcap or crede quod habes et habes a tragic comedy for you in a segment that this week we're calling believe you have a summary and you have it which is a hilarious joke because crede quod habes et habes means believe it and it is true more or less uh (laughs) and it comes up every fucking like six lines in the play that's true it does yeah so let me just explain the hilarious joke i make (laughs) well you kind of have to when it's in a dead language yes good job that's the only time i will seriously and unironically (laughs) allow you to explain a joke to make it funnier (laughs) yeah yeah pretty quote habes and habes is like it is what it is except it's like if you think something, it is true, or if you believe that you have it, then you have it. It's- oh, like the secret. 
Yeah, yeah. It's kind of like, if you believe that you have a happy life, then you will have a happy life. And that's kind of what they they use it for in the play. Um, Or like, believe that you have a faithful wife and you will. Or believe that you can cheat on your husband and you can. It's, yeah. Um, (laughs) Anything's possible if you believe in yourself. Yeah. So believe (laughs) you have a summary and you have it. Um, Congratulations. Yes. Very good. Uh, I'm not going to explain anything else about how the summary is going to go this week. And we're just going to fucking talk about it. Except that uh, the summary is split um, between the main plot and the subplot. So we're going to do the main plot first and then the subplot. Okay. Excellent. All right. Okay. So um, uh, Lorenzo, our aforementioned douchebag, is hanging out in Verona and um, with his wife, Abstemia, who is uh, importantly sister of the duke of venice okay so we're in verona she's the sister of venice um lorenzo is a douchebag and he's all like i am just certain that my wife whose literal name is abstemia is a a whore so hey best friend filippo will you please hit on her for like the third fucking time so that i can make sure that she is in fact a whore and then i can you know get rid of her and filippo's like fucking bro this never ends well for anyone uh and then abstemia is like yeah no i love my husband i don't want to sleep with his best friend and then uh lorenzo kicks her (laughs) and leaves um and then that's where we're at (laughs) yeah uh (laughs) Lorenzo takes the very extreme step of charging his wife legally mm-hmm. uh, and suppressing charges against her and Filippo. Um, so in the play's first trial scene, Act 2, Scene 3, uh, two of Lorenzo's slaves give suborned testimony against the accused. So they've been forced to lie, basically. Yeah. Uh, the court has little choice but to convict. Um, Filippo is banished, Abstemia is divorced legally from Lorenzo, and then a distraught and devastated Abstemia tearfully leaves the court and disappears. Bye forever. Um, Filippo also leaves because, like, that's what you have to do when you are banished. Um, And then, you know, the Duke of Venice, who is Abstemia's brother, like, finds out that his sister has been uh, shamed and divorced and banished. And so he, like, rolls up to Verona with his army and is like what the fuck uh so they go to trial again um Mm -hmm. at which point they discover that the slaves had um been coerced uh and so it all comes out that everything is fake and lorenzo's a douchebag and everything sucks um so lorenzo is banished from verona and is not allowed to return until he can find abstemia and beg her forgiveness and get reunited Then we shift over to Milan in Act 4. Abstemia, who is a victim, you know, uh, just all around, um, she's been lured into a brothel and held prisoner there. She goes under the pseudonym of Millicent. Um, Filippo, Filippo, excuse me, Filippo happens, just happens to visit just this, of all the whorehouses yeah. in all the world, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, attracted by the report of the pretty new girl in in the whorehouse, um, but who has not yet been tamed to sex work. Um, so Millicent has not yet. <clears throat> Sounds um, like Pericles. Heard. She's not heard yet, right? Yeah. Uh, and before like he Pericles. meets, quote unquote, Millicent, um, Filippo is driven out with a kick by Antonio, the son and heir of the Duke of Milan. Antonio wants to be the man to enjoy Millicent first, so they're jockeying for who gets to um, break in this whore. Uh, So they think um, Abstemia is so eloquent and such an advocate for virtue that she is their cooler, basically. She just... (laughs) Um, Both of them just... Yeah. Yeah. So, yes, this sounds a whole lot like Marina's experience in Pericles. I mean, it's almost word for word. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. All right. So then there's this whole thing with Antonio, okay, where he has he has a, a Turkish slave. 
um, who in, you know, the grand Islamophobic tradition of early modern drama is a secret villain. Um, So that sucks. Uh, So Antonio and his Turkish slave uh, change clothes (laughs) because uh, Antonio is trying to escape the notice of his dad. Uh, And, you know, early modern facial blindness is a thing. Um, That's real. So... Antonio then is in um, in the disguise of a slave and he like heads off to go try his luck again with Millicent, a.k.a. Abstemia. Um, And the the Turk who is now disguised as Antonio has this whole great soliloquy about how he's truly, truly evil and he is going to kill Antonio. Um, At which point Filippo comes in. And it's like, oh, hey, this is the guy from the brothel who kicked me. And that was so insulting. So I'm going to shoot him in the eye. Boom. (laughs) And then he like Mm -hmm. leaves. Okay. Um, Mm -hmm. And then like they find the body and they're all like, oh, no, it's Antonio. Because early modern facial blindness and also Antonio's clothes. Yeah. yeah. It's like, uh, you know, if you get shot in your eye, then like part of your face is missing. So. Right. Great. Gross cool Mm -hmm. (laughs) meanwhile lorenzo has come to milan following the reports of abstemia's whereabouts uh the duke of milan and his lords who are searching for antonio's killer investigate all the newcomers to the city um distraught a distraught and penitent lorenzo eager to be finished with his life's burdens he confesses to antonio's murder so he just (laughs) randomly confesses to the murder of a guy he didn't even know yeah who's not actually dead. Yep. <laughs> it's the Turk here. Yeah. Um, Abstemia somehow learns of this through the grapevine. Um, and then she confesses too to save Lorenzo. She's still like trying to be loyal to this fool. Um, the Dukes of Verona and Venice come to Milan. The In the concluding, you know, revelation scene, all of the complications are unwound. So everybody finds out that Antonio shows up. He's still alive. Filippo admits that he killed the Turkish guy. The repentant Lorenzo and the faithful Abstemia are reunited. Uh, Filippo gains a pardon when he produces documents that prove that the slave had planned to kill Antonio. So some, so all of a sudden Filippo was justified in his random murder, uh, you know, which the slave conveniently had on him. He just had those documents on him. Like I'm going to murder Antonio written in a confession and stuck in his pocket. Very convenient. Yeah. Uh, so happy ending for them tied up in a nice little bow. That is the main plot. So the subplot, um, the subplot is not, the main plot it's uh Subplot. yeah but also like <laughs> like it's it's like a foil right okay so right right um so in this plot we have lodovico uh whose motto is crede quod habes et habes which is if you believe that you are you are um and in this case it's if you believe you're a cuckold you are and if you believe you're not a cuckold then you're not ta-da <laughs> yeah it's um, that simple Yeah, so uh, Lodovico invites uh, his friend Francisco to, like, come and teach his wife, Dorotea, some music. He's, like, her music tutor. Um, And Dorotea cannot keep it in her pants. Mm -hmm. Uh, She is like, ooh, Francisco. mm." Uh, And so they, they totally bang. And then she gets pregs because, duh. Um, and she's like real, not subtle about it. Uh, and so all of Lodovico's friends are like, bro, bro, you got it, bro, bro, you got to do something, bro. So what Lodovico (laughs) does, okay, is he disguises himself as a friar and then Hmm. goes to hear his wife's confession. And he is a big dumb dummy. And so he's like, oh, yeah, all I'm going to hear is how, like, faithful and chaste she is. And then he, in fact, finds out that she um, is not faithful or chaste and, in fact, is pregnant with another man's son. So her penance 
that Lodovico, the fake friar, gives her after confessing all of this is that she has to publicly admit to her husband that he is not the father of her baby. <laughs> um, Dorotea is, of course, like appalled by that and does not want to do that. Um, but she's also not stupid. So she makes the confession at a banquet in front of her husband and his friends, and she phrases it as if she's relating the contents of a dream. And Lodovico has already informed the assembled company of the actual truth. Uh, and so, you know, everybody already knows Dorotea is lying when she starts lying. Uh, and it reveals that they've revealed the truth. And he jumps out of his friar's robes like, ta-da, surprise, it was me all along, and embarrasses her and all that and punishes her publicly. Yeah. Um, so Francisco gets a punishment he has to ride through the city's streets backwards on a donkey and then have his forehead branded um yep. dorotea is sent to a nunnery yep. and you know it's like a happy ending for people who are great and a sad ending for people who are not great yep that's the plan yeah. um and the bed the bed trick happens the sort of bed trick yeah. happens in the shenanigans between lodovico francisco yes. and yeah. dorotea yeah. she's got two men is. in the same room and it's pitch dark and like it's very funny to watch them like struggle and sort of grope around in the dark and yeah near misses and all that stuff but it's not There's, really a bad trick there is in fact a very 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 funny line where um francisco is like groping around the bed in the dark trying to find dorotea and he's like oh, a beard <laughs> oh. yeah. he's like oh no it's a beard yeah. and he's like yeah it's a beard yeah um, he's, he's talking about her pubic hair yep um so that's funny <laughs> it is it's quite funny it's yeah. quite funny uh, it's raunchy um in a lot of fun ways uh, yeah. so yeah that's the play that's the play the city nightcap um we <laughs> mentioned pambo in the dp and then we didn't talk about him or his place in the plot but basically he works as a pander he's a clown yeah. but he works as the pander uh the go-between between francisco and dorotea yeah yeah and the lookout kind of yeah but he's a clown so he gets all the things wrong he also gets punished uh in the yeah, end yeah, he does in, yes, in he much does. of the same way that um lucio gets punished at the end of measure for measure yeah it is now time now that we've summarized it for you in our words it is now time for a taste of text in which we read a short scene or a part of a scene from the play to give you a little bit of of its flavor i want to read the bit it's like right after the bed trick ish pambo question mark sends lodovico into the garden and then there's a whole conversation where pambo is pretending to be mm. dorotea it's in act two somewhere. Okay. Um, it's enter Lodovico and clown and then ah, enter got Francisco. It. Act two, scene two. Yeah. Take it away. Are we ready? Uh, yeah. Okay. And again, I'm working from our old production script. So if there are cuts, oh. there are cuts. Are there a lot of cuts? I have no <laughs> idea. <laughs> okay. Well, I guess we'll find out. I mean, um, I know I, I cut it, but it was I don't seven think there years are. ago. Yeah. I don't think there are a ton of cuts. So, okay. okay. Tis he sure has a dreaming whoremaster's pace. Pray, let me practice my lady's part and counterfeit for her. Canst thou imitate to the life? Can I? Oh, wicked Francis. Admirable. Thou shalt do it. Pray you be ready with your rapier to spit him then, and I'll watch him a good turn, I warrant ye. Here they are. If Pambo now comes off with his part neatly, the comedy passes bravely. Who's there? Madam? Francis? The same. I think this place lies too open to the air, Francis. Delicate Pambo. And there's truly, and truly there's a great dew fallen tonight. The grass is wondrous wet. Sweet rogue. Come, Francis, and let us sport ourselves in yonder rushes. And being set, I'll smother thee with buses. Oh, villain! Hear me, lady. It is enough my lord hath now a friend in these dishonest days that dares be honest. How's this? Nay, for thy lord, he's a mere coxcomb, Francis. Out, rogue! 
"'Tis but your bad desires that tell you so. Can I contain a heart, or can that heart harbor a thought of injury against him, under whose wing I safely stretch my penions? Has he not nobly entertained me? Stand I not next neighbor, save yourself, unto his heart? I by this hand dost thou. And should I quit him thus? No, lady, no. Brave Frank! I am too wise to fall in love with woe, much less with woman. I but took advantage of my lord's absence for your trial, lady, for fear some fellow far hotter reigned than I might have sought and sped, and I would be loath a lord so loving, shalt have five leases by these fingers, should have a lady false." Back, lady, to your yet unblemished bed. Preserve your honor and your lord's calf's head. Well, Francis, you had been better if I do not tell my lord of this. He has put it to him now. Then am I lost forever. You'll turn it all on me, I know. But ere I'll live to wrong so good a lord or stand the mark unto your malice, I will first fall on my sword and perish. We'll maybe just leave it there. Yeah. So essentially, what we have here is Lodovico is finally gotten wise to the fact that maybe Dorte is cheating on him, um, and so he he conscripts Pambo to entrap Francisco. But Francisco's gotten to Pambo first, so Pambo is playing double agent here, right? Um, and because and Francisco and Pambo have already decided that no, we're not going to do this assignation that Lodovico wants to catch Dorotea in the act, we're going to deny our feelings and look like a good friend and wife. Right. So it's, yeah, yeah. very silly, very, very silly and a little confusing, <laughs> but funny. Yeah. Cool. Well, let's, let's hear some <laughs> shit. Talk to me. Uh, talk, talk to me, baby. Yeah. Okay. So I'm going to, I'm going to talk about, um, the stage directions in this play. Uh, so the, the dictionary of, um, stage directions in English drama, which is a a book that I have talked about many, many times Mm -hmm. over the last six years. Um, so the, the dictionary of stage directions catalogs 40 stage directions in all of early modern drama that call for a kick. Um, and of those 40 in, you know, 62 years of English drama, there are five kicks in the city nightcap. So um, that's important. That's the largest uh, concentration of kicks in, in any it's one play. Um, it's a lot of kicking. It's a lot. Um, so I just want to talk about the first one or maybe two um, and the way that they highlight early modern attitudes about gender roles. OK, so um, as we said at the top of the play, uh, we discover Lorenzo and his friend Filippo in the middle of a conversation about abstemia um, and how Lorenzo wants Filippo to try to seduce her for the third time to prove her unfaithfulness. And then abstemia enters uh, to deliver a message. Um where she says like hey uh you know the the duke is here and lorenzo's like yeah he's back from seeing your brother and she's like yes and they're just waiting for your company and he's like oh and you are cloyed with my company and then he kicks her and exit she weeps um which is like the funniest it's just a funny it's a funny like phrase. grammatically yeah yeah it's grammatically funny <laughs> Kicks her and exit. Not exits, but exit. Yeah, period. She weeps, um, period. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's good. Um, so the most delightful thing about early modern stage directions, I think, is their ambiguity, right? So, like, kicks her and exit, she weeps, can seem pretty specific. A kick is more prescriptive than something like strike. And what's more, this kick, this first one, is followed by a very specific reaction, right? She weeps. So this is really pretty early in in the play and then 
Um, at the at the bottom of Act One, Abstemia gets kicked for a second time, also by Lorenzo. Um, so this one, the second one, occurs just after Lorenzo has Filippo and Abstemia arrested for adultery. So Abstemia attempts to reason and plead with Lorenzo. She's like, I love you. You are my husband. If you will just explain to me what it is you want, I can do what it is that you want. And she's like, oh, my lord, please you know mercy and he calls her a whore he says ye whore and then kicks her she swoons so those are our first our first two kicking uh stage directions kicks her and exit she weeps kicks her she swoons so taken together with the city nightcaps title page declaration that it is a quote tragic comedy um it becomes clear that these two kicks contribute to the tragic portion of the play and they're you know therefore should be treated seriously like they're not they're not this is not slapstick right this is um gendered violence this is right. intimate partner violence abuse. yeah yes yeah it's it's you know take it seriously yeah. so here's the thing with kicks okay um is that when when it comes to Lorenzo specifically, right, because he kicks her twice, um, this is an opportunity for performance to indicate that he's more he's more focused on what the kick means than how it looks. Right. So the kick is an exertion of power over his wife. It's a dehumanizing public act that communicates to her and also to any bystanders that he considers her a possession. All of the kicks in this play um are their their downwards kicks uh socially right so like it's always someone with higher social status kicking someone with lower social status so lorenzo believes that his wife has committed an unpardonable offense and he chooses to communicate his feelings of betrayal physically this is a whole thing um in jacobean drama so uh scholar leonard tenenhouse uh, argues that when when wives act out in ways that their husbands find inappropriate um her crimes the wife's crimes authorizes his power um as he makes that crime legible on her body which is like a horrific thing to think about and say but we have you know 400 years of space on on this so Lorenzo's behavior is like totally inexcusable by modern standards, but early modern audiences would have read it entirely different, uh, differently. Sorry, they would not have been shocked to see it, even if they believed that it was, you know, inappropriate themselves. Um, Lorenzo reinforces the idea that sexual relations are always political by then turning to the power of the courts. So um, I want to I want to follow up then on what I just said about how this was like a not a shocking thing. Um, so there's there's the whole like subgenre of early modern literature that is like behavior manuals that are designed more or less specifically for women um, and how they should behave as daughters and wives and mothers and, you know, so on and so forth. So um, early modern English society subscribed to the idea that women were made holier and more virtuous by their suffering. Because of course they were. Um, Big fucking eye roll there. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. there's <clears throat> one, one in particular. It's called A Homily of the State of Matrimony. Um, and it advises women who find themselves saddled with a husband who does not spare the rod to, quote, take it not too heavily, but suppose thou that thereby is laid by no small reward hereafter, and in this lifetime no small commendation to thee if thou canst be quiet. So, you know, suffer in silence. Mm -hmm. Um, it, you know, the advice gives women some spiritual agency to imagine themselves as martyrs while they live. Uh, but I think that that's super fucked up. Yeah. So. Because it is. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think maybe that's all I want to say about Kiki. Mm -hmm. So. Yeah. Um, so production wise, you've got stage mm -hmm. violence to work out, right? Um, quite a so bit of it. So much. Quite a bit of it. Five kicks and a gunshot. Yeah. Yeah. 
a lot of it. Um, and not to mention the the bedography, right, of the non-bed trick, <laughs> bed trick moment. Yeah. Um, talk about like a, a, a play just full of buck baskets, really. Um, and then I was also, I'm skimming through right now, trying to find the mask. Um, it's in Act 4. Yeah. Masks usually do come in in Act 4, don't they? Um, <laughs> they do. Like, I don't know. It feels like an Act 4 type of thing. Um, and I'm struggling to remember why this mask happens at all. It's uh, it's it's the prelude to Dorothy being like, I cheated on you. <gasps> right, 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 right. OK, yes. So, OK. Uh, so, yes, in Act Four, Scene Two, um, there's this random mask. Uh, and, and again, if you're a, a longtime listener, you we've talked about masks before um, on this pod. Uh, they are you know, like extravagant s- s- song and dancery things that happen in place sometimes uh, during this period. Um, so there's this weird like barnyard mask that happens in act four um, with Dorotea and her ladies and Lodovico and the clown and maskers. They are masked yeah, as a, a, goat, a, a, bull. Yeah, a stag, a ram, a, stag. a bull and a goat. Um, yeah. It, uh, it's super weird. Um, well, they're all horned animals, yeah, right? Right, and it's, and the it's right. horns. It's, yeah, yeah, it's the the dance of the cuckolds yeah. and whatever. Um, yes, um, and this is what Dor- gets Dorotea to like into into her non confession confession, right? Um, yeah, yeah. So, so these are. I mean, to me, I remember it being a fun thing to stage um, because I was the one taking blocking notes for it. I wasn't the one doing the actual staging of it. Um, but like, I remember, you know, that was a fun but also complicated thing that needed time, right? And also, the, uh, this play is weird because it feels like it's one of those that like really actually reaches its conclusion, like in Act Four, like it's done. I think I feel. In Act Four, and then Act Five is just sort of like a dangler. Is that that's that's what I was saying to my friends? Like in the same way that Duchess of Malfi, Act Five is like yeah. a con- completely different play. Yeah, in this, in this play, Act Five is yeah, kind that's of a completely what, different yeah, play. That's what this one does too. It's yeah. and it's yeah, it's frustrating. Um, Act Five is just like the dingleberry on <laughs> the turd that is the rest of this play. <laughs> Gross, Audrey. <laughs> You're welcome for my poop analogies. Uh, okay. Um, yeah, so you just have... There's a lot of staging challenges. Just just so, so many staging challenges in this play um, that you need to keep abreast of if you're going to try to produce it. But, like, don't produce it. <laughs> <laughs> or if you must, you know... D- do it kind of like like our MFA company did, like a one-off. You know, like you do it like one time. Yeah. Don't try to like run it in rep with anything else. You're not going to – I really don't feel like a play like this where like the one wife, you know, the foils of wives, uh, the one wife who's good and virtuous and the other who is terrible and, and adulterous um, and they both suffer needlessly. Like you're not going to – there's not like major social – commentary that needs to happen on top of that like we don't need to re-traumatize women no or (laughs) or anybody really yes yeah like you know we we in a in a cowardly manner we we mostly cut the islamophobic stuff right um instead of really dealing with it um which I feel poorly about seven years later. Um, yeah. But there was no one really holding our feet to the fire because this was our own, you know, theater company. Mm-hmm. Um, and so rather than address it, we cut it. But there's a lot of really shitty yeah. uh, Islamophobia in the play. And not slavery. least of which. Yeah. And yeah, slavery. <laughs> um, not least of which is, you know, this, the the Turkish slave who has been 
horrifically treated and enslaved by Antonio and then gets one soliloquy where he's like, I'm evil, and then is shot in the face and dies. And it's like comedy. So, you know, don't traumatize people. Yeah. This play is problematic as fuck. Like, yeah, it, it really is. It really is. There are some interesting. I think you said it best when you said like, it is, uh, I think, a good play to grapple with on the page, right? It's got interesting stage directions. It has problematic content that deserves to be, like, discussed and interrogated and whatever. But, like, mm-hmm. does it need to be produced again? No, probably not. It's, like, right up there with, like, Othello and and some other plays that people would, might argue, <laughs> like, don't produce this anymore. Maybe don't. Maybe the world doesn't yeah. need it. You know? Yeah. Um, so that's my hot take. I don't have much else to say, really. Like, shall yeah. we gossip? We shall. Not a lot this week, but... No, but kind of major stuff. Yeah, well, at least one major thing. Yeah. <laughs> um, What's with this new portrait? So The Guardian this week uh, reported that a hitherto unknown portrait of Shakespeare made during his lifetime uh, mm. is on sale for $10 million. Uh, pounds or euros. Um, I forget which. Not, not dollars, but ten million of a currency. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll link to the article so that you can you can read it yourself. Um, I have looked at the portrait, and I don't think that it looks too terribly like our friend Shakespeare, except for the high forehead. Um, The idea, right, is that we have two, maybe three, like, authorial portraits of Shakespeare. And one is the the Drosho portrait in the, like, the engraving in the front of the folio. Mm -hmm. Um, And the other is uh, his funeral monument in Stratford. And then there's the Mm -hmm. Chandos portrait, um, which is in the National Gallery, question mark, in london um which is i had thought was like yes we thought that that was shakespeare but that is not listed in this article so like i don't know there's an art expert quoted in the article who's like (laughs) yeah this is totally shakespeare uh and then there's michael dobson of the birthplace trust or the shakespeare institute or one of those two things or maybe both of those two things. Anyway, it's Michael Dobson. He's like a big time Shakespeare guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he's like, nah, that ain't it. Um, so, nah. <laughs> okay. Maybe but, take a I look mean, at it. Yeah, go go Judge look at the yourselves. look at it. It's a it's a he it's a, it's a picture. It's a dude. It's a picture. It's a portrait of a guy in a ruff with a high forehead and a beard. Yeah. So. There we go. Yeah. And then the other thing. Yeah. The other thing is that Dr. Patricia Akimi is the new executive director of the Folger Institute, which means that she's not in charge of the entire Folger library, just the academic wing of it. Mm -hmm. Um, But this is pretty major. And it was just announced uh, this past week. It's huge news. Huge. She's rad. So Um, rad. Like, I'm, I'm very excited for like the things oh the things she will do at at the Folger Institute right I mean it's just so cool if if I am correct which I think I am the first and only person of color Mm -hmm. to be in a major position of power at the Folger so Mm -hmm. hell yeah 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 hell yeah major um she succeeds Dr. Kathleen Lynch in the in the position. Um, Dr. Akimi is the editor of the Art and Othello fourth series. She is, uh, you know, a, a major voice and a major player in the early modern critical race studies field mm-hmm. and early modern literature and Renaissance drama. Mm-hmm. Um, she's the director of the Race Before Race Mentorship Network, mm-hmm. um, an associate professor of English at Rutgers University, Newark. I mean, mm-hmm. she is just like, she's amazing. So, so great. Um, yeah. So be excited. <laughs> Be yeah. excited with us about this. It's kind yeah. of amazing and groundbreaking. So 
Yay. I like yeah. ending on a high note. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> Yay. Okay, that's it. We're done. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you leave a podcast more informed than when you started. Yeah. So a little bit of business. We are breaking now for the holidays, um, but we will be back in January. Yes. Uh to talk about sexy Tudor queens with Dr. Yeah. Yasmin Shimi. Um, and we're giving you homework for the first time in podcast history. We are giving you homework. We are? Um, we are. This is, okay, yeah, there it is. Look at yeah. that in the script. This is news to me. Yeah. <laughs> I need um, homework too. Yes, well, it's, I, because we'll, we, we will also do the homework. Everyone's going to do this homework. So, um, by the time this podcast hits y'all's ears, uh, the show will be out. It's called Blood, Sex, and Royalty on Netflix. Um, and it's a three-part docudrama uh, that's, that is claiming to show us Anne Boleyn like we've never seen her before, uh, to okay, which I said, out. is she a lizard person? Because that's an <laughs> Anne Boleyn I've never seen before. Uh <laughs> But I, I imagine she's not a lizard person, and this will not, in fact, be an Anne Boleyn that I've never seen before. Anyway, um, we're yes. So watch this thing because the at least some of our conversation with Yasmin will be about this show, um, and then the rest of it will be about like why Tudor queens get eroticized and what the fuck is going on in Shakespeare and Fletcher's Henry VIII and you know all kinds mm-hmm. of fun shit so yeah um if you're in the united states have a happy thanksgiving um and if you're not in the united states have a nice thursday <laughs> uh and if you're anywhere in the world that celebrates christmas then enjoy your christmas if you are anywhere in the world that celebrates hanukkah enjoy your hanukkah um winter solstice uh kwanzaa, kwanzaa. um other holiday yeah other winter holiday festivities anything that that comes up you, you make know, those snow angels the month of december you know? yeah enjoy it we'll be back in early january although i'm not sure when yep. because i don't have a calendar in see front of you me. in like, 2023 oh fuck yeah <laughs> all right whamlet out the hurly burly shakespeare show is produced and edited by aubrey whitlock and jess hamlet if you enjoyed our podcast Please tell your friends, rate us, leave a review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you get your podcasts. For show notes and other stuff, you can visit our website at www.hurlyburlyshakespeareshow.com. You can get in touch with us by emailing holla, H-O-L-L-A, at hurlyburlyshakespeareshow.com. You can also find us at hurlyburlyshakes on Instagram. Or at hurlyburlyshake, no S, on Twitter. The land on which I live and work, colonially known as Stanton, Virginia, is the unceded territory of the Monacan Confederation of Nations, and I pay my respects to their elders past and present. The traditional custodians of the land on which I live are the Lenape Nation, and I pay my respects to their elders past and present. Learn about where you live at native-land.ca. Get involved at ndncollective.org and find out more about the Landback campaign at landback.org. All opinions you heard are strictly our own and not affiliated with the institutions we represent. Um, and while Henry I, uh, licensed in 1624, was certainly a play for the king's men, it appears that eight years after Shakespeare's death and scholars, what I can't, hang on, I lost how to read words. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> while the Henry the while the Henry one.